The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to be joined this week by Douglas Stewart, who has just won the Booker Prize for his first novel, quite an achievement, which is called Shuggy Bane, and tells the story of a little boy growing up in 1980s Glasgow and his relationship with, well, I guess three generations of his own family, including his own. Douglas, welcome. Tell, Tell us a bit about Shuggy and his world, if you could. Oh, certainly. Thanks for having me, Sam. Well, Shuggy's world is certainly a world of loss and of complication. The book focuses on a very intimate story between Shuggy, who is the youngest of three children, and his mother, Agnes Bain, who is a beautiful, defiant, generous, funny, resilient Glaswegian housewife. Agnes has married across sectarian lines and uh, her husband is actually philandering his way across the city. Philandering is too nice of a word for what he does, but uh, he is treating women appallingly across the city and cheating on Agnes. When he, Agnes believes that he is moving her and their children to a new home, he uses that opportunity to abandon her and her three children in a North Lanarkshire mining town that is being shut down by the Thatcher government. After Agnes is abandoned, she starts to descend into addiction and to hopelessness. And it is really a look at how her three children react to that, how they stay by their mother's side and try to save their mother from herself. It is Shuggy, uh, the youngest, who stays by her side the longest. But while his mother is struggling with her own situation, Shuggy is quickly othered by the community around him. It is a very hard-drinking, hard-living, hard-man's world. And Shuggy is a young, effeminate, precocious watchful, sensitive boy, and from about the age of six he is told he has no right or not like the others, and so he also suffers from some isolation. So it's, a, it's really a portrait or a love story about these two souls who are clinging to each other in these tough times. And what was it that made you want to write this story? What was the germ of it? You know, I, I have a tough time with that question because I think the story comes so close from my own heart and it's so close under my own skin that I don't know what the germ actually was. Um, it wasn't like I cast my eye out into the world and, and it alighted on some kind of inspiration. I grew up poor. Uh, I'm the son of a single mother who suffered from alcoholism her whole life and then lost her battle with it when I was uh, in high school. And that was 30 years ago. And for the past 20 years, I've lived in New York. But I think I've always sort of missed home. I've missed Glasgow. I've been wanting to sort of create the world and really sort of set that on the page. And and so the distance for me brought an awful lot of clarity, but it brought an awful lot of longing as well. And I think I sat down to write Shuggy Bain in order to make sense of myself and sense of my entire journey, but also to recreate this world that I felt was sort of slipping away from me. And so sitting down and spending 10 years writing a book that is set in 1980s Glasgow and looks at this whole chorus of characters, I think came from a place of love. I mean, you talk about the fact, you know, you're in New York and you read, I know Seamus Heaney, you know, when he went to, he sort of started attacking Ireland and looking at his childhood and his, his world almost more closely when he went to the States. Did that 
distance, that sort of sense of, I don't know, exile or whatever, help you to create the world of the of the book? I think it did. I think it let me see it clearer for myself and come out of the tangle of it. Uh, when you're a kid who suffers from trauma or when you love a parent who is suffering from addiction, you have no control over the situation and you're sort of whipped around almost like you're being sucked into a black hole. But of course, being a writer, being a fiction writer, even if you're writing from a place of memory or autobiographical fiction, I suppose, you have ultimate control and you can look at these things and turn them in the light and set them on the page as you want to see them. And so part of it was that. But also being a migrant or being an immigrant meant that I was forever sort of explaining myself to the world and who I was and the stories that I carried within me. And it's it's really testament, I suppose, to the stoicism of the Scottish people that out with the west coast of Scotland and perhaps some of the UK, most people don't understand how difficult the Thatcher years were in Scotland, how families were decimated, how unemployment went to 26% and even higher on certain streets and certain housing schemes. And of course, when all the jobs went away, when all the industry folded, uh, then rushes in uh, sort of addiction and poverty and life expectancy issues that have plagued the city for the past 30 years. And so when I sort of found myself in America, I found myself not being able to express this to anyone. First of all, men from the West Coast of Scotland never talk about their feelings. We never are encouraged to think of ourselves as exceptional in any way, either exceptionally great or exceptionally hard done to. And so you just sort of keep it to yourself. And part of the reason I think I came to the page and I wanted to create a fiction out of Shaggy Bane was just explaining this, this milieu to the world. You say it took 10 years. I mean, was that sort of 10 years squirreled into spare time? Did you sort of have a sense of where, where you were going with it and, you know, what it was going to turn into? Or was it just, as you say, explaining bits and pieces? Yeah, I had a sense from the very first draft of where it was going. But then at the same time, when I sat down to write, I wouldn't allow myself to place any pressure on the book or even believe it was a book because... What I wanted to do was just write these scenes as they came to me and spend time in this world. And I think also uh, I carried a lot of stigma and feelings of inferiority inside myself um, about who am I to be a writer and who is this boy from working class Glasgow to think he could write a book. And so I just took it bit by bit and step by step and allowed myself the pleasure of learning my craft and also writing it as it came. And so the first draft of the book, although I had an overarching idea of it, came to me out of chronological order and I started on chapter 13 which is in the heart of the book two brothers who are going scrapping for copper on this sea of slag at an abandoned colliery and then I went forward to chapter 22 and then back to chapter 4 and I had the sense that I had something quite powerful by a leash but I didn't want to get in front of it at that stage and try and corral it or turn it I wanted the characters to tell me what they wanted to tell me and show me what they they wanted to show me and so I allowed them that space and I allowed my writing that space and it was clear to me even in writing the first draft that it very quickly dwarfed or eclipsed my own experience or my own lived experience certainly my knowledge of Glasgow as you say Shuggy is in a relationship with his mother but he, it is a book that spans three generations of this family and looks at Glasgow from the 1940s all the way to the 1990s and so there was no way for me as a single individual to know all of this when I sat down to, to write. And so I allowed the book to, to unfurl in that way. 
And the first draft was 900 pages single-spaced, which for anyone outside of literary communities would be about, a, a, I think, about a 1,600-page book if it was ever published. So it was a monster. It was a monster. It was an epic. It wasn't epically good, but it was, it was certainly long. And so the next 10 years was about refining that and, and really distilling it to the book you, you have now. Are there whole sections of plotline that came out? There are. I was so fascinated by all the characters and their motivations and their personal histories, even the chorus. Uh, so there's a, a really powerful chorus of women who live in the, the pit town. Yeah, Jinty being their ringleader. And I just wanted to, before I brought Jinty into the world of Agnes and Shuggy, I wanted to also understand how Jinty had gotten to be the person she had. And then the eldest sister, Catherine, goes to South Africa. And I'd wanted to look at what it meant. Uh, you know, migration is such a part of Scottish history and I wanted to explore Catherine's journey in South Africa at the time. And so part of it was a lack of discipline. Another part of it was I was just loving to write these characters and, and to spend time with them. Do you have that impression? I can't remember. I think it was a Hemingway thing where he said, you know, everything that's crossed out sort of stays there anyway. You know, I mean, did you feel having, because Catherine, obviously in the in the book, as it's published, she sort of quite vanished from the story but she substantially vanishes from the story I mean did it sort of help you to know to know to have written all that backstory yeah absolutely and I think it helps you to understand the motivations of the characters but then also what their absence means and where they where they go to it was important for me to understand how to write Catherine in South Africa to understand what her house would look like and where she was sort of spending her day as a housewife there even though we don't show it in the book because I think it helped me to put on the page the the sort of the the grief that Agnes felt at losing her youngest daughter but also the the distance in terms of uh, both miles but also in social class that was between them and so just putting all that on the page let me also focus on the the lens on where I wanted it to be and that was actually the greatest advice I got from my editor Peter Blackstock at Grove Atlantic when he read the book or the manuscript as a draft, he said, I will publish it exactly as it is, but if there was any way to keep the lens on Agnes and Shuggy slightly more, that would be the heart of the book. I mean, the, the title is Shuggy Bane, and in a sense it's it's a sort of building from one of him, but you've given it a, a peculiar structure, haven't you? It's sort of bracketed by these not-quite-present tense, I think it's 1992, isn't it, sections. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to include spoilers here, but you know, what was it that made you... Do it that way. Well, we begin and we end the book on Shuggy. And I, uh, Shuggy in 1992, whereas we spend the rest of the book looking back at his family. And I did that for a couple of reasons. I wanted the reader to begin with a question and then be left with a question. First of all, I, I wanted the reader to wonder why we had this 15, 16-year-old boy who is living in a boarding house with men in their 60s and 70s. Where is family? What happened to his family? And I wanted that to be the way in. And then we end on Chuggy because I wanted it to really be the reader's question of what now happens to this young boy? Uh, what what does generational poverty do to people? How will Shuggy survive? What is the next sort of uh, generation going to look like in the Bain family? And so I wanted to sort of bookend it in that way, although most of the book is really about Agnes and sort of the scourge of her addiction and how it scorches everyone around her. But in a lot of ways, because we were looking at Agnes and we're looking at her disintegration, Sometimes when you're in poverty and you can't see a sort of a bright horizon or something coming for hope, 
Every parent's hope is their child or their children or their next generation, that things will be better, even marginally better or just slightly better. And so in a way, Shuggy is the part of Agnes that continues on and uh, sort of carries her memory with her and carries her hope. And so I wanted it to be end on that hopeful note. You've said that you feel or felt kind of, you had a sense of inadequacy, a sense of, you know, you couldn't be a writer. Can you tell me what, what it was that as it kind of drew you out that made you start to think you could be a writer? And, you know, what, as you were growing up, were books important to you? I mean, you said you were growing up in a very alcoholic household, very deprived household. I mean, were you, were you kind of short of, of books? Uh, yes. Well, so I grew up in a house that uh, without books, which I don't think was especially unusual for the time or the place, uh, you know, growing up on a housing scheme in the East End of Glasgow. Books were something that I didn't come to until I was a young man. I think to be able to read or to be able to focus on reading, you need an awful lot of peace within yourself and also in your environment. And honestly, there was just so much deprivation around us. There were so many kids coming to school every day without their needs being met uh, by society or having some trouble at home. The school was just a riot. Of the, I don't know, 250 kids that started school, I think only 12 of us completed it with enough sort of years under our belts to go on to higher education. And so it was just, everyone was struggling. And I think that's part of the point of Shuggy is it's not just the Bain family that are having a tough time. This is a community in crisis. But books for me, I didn't really understand them until I was about 17, until after my mother died. And suddenly I didn't have the sort of the, the terror or the fear of her addiction. And then school empties out. And so I didn't have the bullying and the chaos that school was. And I'm one of only 12 kids in a year now. And, and I had these two English masters that were able to, first of all, focus on purely teaching us, but also to spend some dedicated time with each of us. And so I was the first kid in my family to finish high school, actually. But I was clinging to education because I'd seen the, the, the effects of unemployment across Glasgow at the time. And I didn't know what education would bring to me because I had no one to sherpa me through that. But I knew it would bring something. And so... You know, I lived in a boarding house at 16. I worked four nights a week, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, just to finish high school. But that's when I discover books as a young man, and they just start to spirit me away. But it was too late for me to study English. And besides that, there was a stigma to that idea, because English is an incredibly middle-class thing. It's incredibly academic. Uh, even the teachers knew that I was too far behind in, in my learning and in my reading to be able to do that. And so instead, I was funneled into textiles, encouraged, but funneled into textiles, not even knowing what cloth and cloth manufacturing was at 17, 18. Uh, that's the life I built, and that's the life that ultimately brought me to New York. But sitting down to write Shuggy, uh, I must have started now 12 or 14 years ago, was about sort of reconnecting with dreams that I'd furloughed or things that... I'd wanted to do for myself. I'd always wanted to be a writer. It's just, I almost had to take a very roundabout way to, to arriving at that point. And so spending 12 years, 10 years writing the book, 12 years in getting it published, part of it was about proving something to myself as well. And um, I didn't let anyone read it other than my husband for, for about 10 years because I had to make sure it was worth sharing. I didn't have any encouragement. I didn't have a creative writing community. I didn't come from that point of view of an education. And so I was, I was really working and honing my craft. And I think I read somewhere that, like, maybe this is the 900-page version, but it was rejected by a number of publishers before, you know, Grove Atlantic picked it up. 
was that I mean what gave you the the sort of oomph to carry on through that well rejection is part of life for a start and it's definitely part of a writer's life if you are not able to cope with rejection, then I wouldn't ever pursue trying to get something published, even a short story. You will be rejected by agents, you'll be rejected by editors, uh, by magazines and their submissions. And and I knew that. And also coming from an industrial design background, I was I'd grown that sort of creative tenacity that you that you need. But I was certain of the book, and I was certain that I only wanted the book to be published uh, in the form that I wanted it to be published. So rejection didn't actually matter to me in a funny way because. Uh, all I had wanted to do was write the book, and I'd already achieved that. But many people came to the book and didn't know how to market it, didn't know who would be interested in a story about a Glaswegian family in 1980s Glasgow. And it was the bravery of just one publisher after 32 rejections. My editor actually took, my agent actually told me it was only 20 rejections, and then confessed to me later it was 32. And then I actually think I saw her in the press today say it was about 48 inter- when you consider all the international publishers. The fish uh, is getting bigger. It's, bigger. Getting big, it's getting worse and worse for me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a good way to balance the ego, I think. But part of the path of rejection as well is you're looking for a champion for your book. You're looking for someone who believes in your work as much as you believe in it. Uh, because it's, it's damn hard to publish anything, especially to bring a new voice into the world. And especially in America when that voice is from overseas, when it is a, a, a Scottish voice. So I don't think badly of the people who rejected the books, but I'm really glad that I found uh, my champions at Grove Atlantic. The world of the book is, I mean, it chimed in my mind with a non-fiction work by Damien Barr, who I think you might know, Maggie and Me, which had the same, you know, the experience of growing up under deprivation in Scotland and, you know, being gay and being bullied at school and... Do you feel like there is a a sort of community of Scottish writing that, you know, sort of holds together and coheres? I know, I mean, you've talked in the past, I've seen about Kelman being someone who was very inspiring to you. I mean, do you see there being a sort of distinct and separate Scottish literature from the mainstream of, if you like, English literary fiction? I don't know if it's um, distinct and separate. I am a huge fan of Damien's. I think in the past couple of weeks, the conversation has often gone from Kelman winning in the 90s to me winning this year. And the truth is, is there's always been a very energetic, urgent, powerful pool of Scottish voices and Scottish writers, especially at this at this moment. I'm a huge fan of Damien's and Jenny Fagan's, Kirsten Innes's, uh Kerry Hudson is a enormous inspiration to me, Graham Armstrong. And so we're always there and we're always uh, writing and, and writing from our, uh, our distinct points of view. But I think what the booker does is it allows the spotlight to just sort of swing there for a moment and, and focus on it. But it's not that it's just happened. It's always, always been there. And even had I been recognized by the booker or not, these are the writers that I grow, grew up amongst, but also whose work inspires me every single day. You know, it took me until, I think probably a way to answer your question is, even though writing and reading became a part of my life at 17 or 18, it actually took me until I was in my mid-twenties to be able to search about and find Scottish writers, which is why diversity matters in publishing, why representation matters in publishing. I had to sort of be my own man and then go and try and find voices from my own country. And that's when I fell in love with Kelman or Owens or Galloway 
or grey and and not only for Scottish voices but then for queer voices or regional voices because so often growing up in the 80s everything that was sort of put in front of us was middle class English voices and and that's great but that's only one facet of the prism and you want to be able to to sort of see it and register all of it. That Scotland of the 80s you describe you know the sectarian aspect to it is really powerful and obviously you know shapes the stories of the the characters is your sense that that that's changed i mean is that a particular moment or is that something that that carries on i think it's i think it's always changing it's always shifting but i do know that glasgow still has the second largest orange march after belfast so for some people in the city it's still a very important thing but when i look at uh, the patriarchy or misogyny or homophobia or sectarianism i wanted to not make these huge capital issues within the book because in a way they're part of the fabric of everyday life growing up on house and schemes in Glasgow and so my responsibility was to show the characters lives and to do that with as much honesty and dignity as I could but not to then take these themes and present them in major ways for the reader or to translate them for the reader. A lot of the sort of sectarianism or the religious divide that happens in the book happens in banter over the dinner table or how mothers talk about their sons-in-laws or how, you know, uh, a marriage is viewed. And that was the way I knew it. I'd used the word casual last week, but casual's not the right one. It was sort of a very unthinking hate talk. You know, it was sort of hate speech. It was it was just a very everyday banter in a way, although we know it's incredibly hurtful. But that was just part of growing up in Glasgow. We didn't know any better, I think. And it was... And so... The point is, is not to write the book and then make it something for the readers to look at. The point is, is just to show this as part of life. And those individual relationships, I mean, I'm interested in your attitude to, say, for instance, in as much as the book has a villain, it's probably Shug, the father who abandons Agnes. But I suppose the question would be, do you feel the book has a villain? Do you, do you see Shug as, as beyond redemption? No, I don't think any. I don't think there's any villains in the book. I think it's uh, people, whether they're good or they're bad, reacting to good or bad times. And one of the main themes of the book is people doing what they need to survive. We even see Agnes being judged quite harshly throughout the book by other women, mainly for taking this enormous pride in her appearance, to looking for sort of uh, a little bit of glamour in her life when they all think she should toe the line and and stay at home and be respectable like they are. And the truth is, is we then sort of pivot in the middle of the book and see her mother, who has been her harshest critic up to that point, uh, who actually did something very shocking, I think, uh, in the 1940s in order to survive. And we also start the book by looking at her youngest son, Shuggy, also doing similar things in order to survive. So for me, the book is not about bad people or villains. It's about people getting by. And I wouldn't actually leave the character of Shug, who is probably the most selfish person in the book. He's certainly a misogynist. He treats women appallingly. He treats his children appallingly. But I wouldn't finish writing him or leave him in the book until I had some kind of understanding or love for him, even though he is uh, a pretty bad man. But the truth is, is everybody there is struggling under the patriarchy. And even the men, in a way, uh, have no remit to be able to express themselves or to be gentle or sensitive. It's quite a hard a hard time. And we know when men suffer like that, that it's women and children that really get the brunt of it. And so I wanted just to, to show that and not to place too much judgment on it. Yeah, and that's, there seems to be a completely different way in which addiction or 
drunkenness and violence is coded between the men and the women in the book, isn't there? Well, that's, that's true of literature in general. Growing up as a young boy whose mother struggled with addiction, I saw how she was isolated in the community, how she was judged harder than any of the men who would come stoting in on a Saturday morning, having spent all their wages and drunk twice as much and gone twice as hard as my mother ever would have. But my entire world as a kid was my mother and then women she met in the community who were also struggling or women she met through AA who were struggling. And so I just had this really odd front row seat to what that was like and, and what they felt like. But in literature, I think we, there's in West of Scotland literature, if we think about uh, Kelman or we think about Grey, uh, there is a, a rich history of the struggling soul or the alcoholic being a man. But he's garrulous, he's a little bit gallus, he's, you know, he's running around town and we almost forgive him. If we think about how gregarious and uh, lively all of Irvin Welsh's addicts are and, and how we actually almost come to revere them as a young boy when we had that culture shockwave of train spotting coming out, I suddenly had all these middle-class friends at university that wanted to ape these characters. And yet me coming from a home that had addiction and it couldn't have any sort of sympathy or, or, or warm feelings towards them. But that's what we do in literature. We allow men to behave very badly and we still forgive them or we even idolize them. When mothers are fallible or when women struggle, we shun them or we treat them very, very harshly. Also, women do it to women. It's not just men doing it. And so I wanted to put that in the book and I didn't want to make a big comment about it. I just wanted to show it and, and show the isolation that Agnes goes through. I was going to say one of the things about the women in the book, you described this thing, the pit aunties, you've called them a chorus. But there's a sense also in which they are, you know, to use the jargon of AA, they're kind of enablers. That where do you feel, is it just alcoholism loving company? There's a sort of description, and I can't remember how you put it, but it's as if they're a sort of wind that's trying to blow in through the front door and Shuggy's trying to keep them out, but the draft's always going to come in and she's going to relapse because they'll turn up with a tin. Yeah, I think sometimes when we look at... Um women suffering with addiction in books, it can often be a sort of locked room drama where the woman's collapsing into herself in the front room and receding from society. And I had always known addiction to be incredibly gregarious and social sometimes. The thing about alcoholism that's really exhausting is you could you never know what it's going to bring. Sometimes it brings a good time in a party, other times it brings the poor me's or someone uh, slipping into melancholy. And so Agnes that's part of Shuggy's exhaustion in the book. He never knows what he's coming home to. And several times he just stands in the street and looks at the windows and looks at the curtains and, and tries to almost guess what may lay inside for him. But I'd also known addiction as not being something that affected one person because it harms everybody around them. But then it also influences and calls on people in the sort of the wider orbit. And much of what the book is about is Agnes suffering, but then women around her also suffering. This is not just one family that's having a tough time. This is really a community. But then it's also people exploiting each other sometimes, taking advantage of each other, enabling, as you say, and then also helping. Some of the, I think, the most tenderest moments in the book are when the woman across the street, the character of Colleen McAvenny, has a, has a collapse and her husband leaves her and she finds out he's cheating on her, that she finds out that her husband is cheating on her. And Agnes, who has always been in this sort of full relationship with this woman, uh, suddenly comes to her aid and shows her a, a huge act of compassion. The other sort of tender relationship in the book that goes through it always between 
Shuggy and Leek, his older brother. I mean, can you give me a sense of how you see Leek's role in the book? Because he, he's got, there's a lovely description very early on. You talk about how people say, you know, is Leek in there? I'll say, you know, surely you'd notice, but he's capable of almost disappearing while he's there. <laughs> yeah, Leek is actually was my favourite character to write. Here is Shuggy's older brother, and he is a very gentle and sensitive heterosexual man who sort of uh, has, the way he copes with his mother's addiction is almost dislocating or disappearing. He has a very ghostly presence. And so instead of how Catherine and Shuggy deal with it, he just almost fades away like a ghost. And because of all the other men in the book have this real presence, I mean, literally, Big Shug, when he enters a room, can stop a party. And he does at the very beginning of the book. You then have this masculine presence with Leek that is gentle and sensitive and watchful and is always, always there, but does no harm. And so I think it's always such a brave act to be a gentle soul in a tough place, especially to be a man who isn't sort of violent or hard drinking or overly sexualized, and just to be a very kind uh, soul the way Leek is. And Leek in the book is the most generous of characters as well, because he almost forgoes his own dreams and his own future in order to make sure his mother's okay and his younger brother's okay. And yet he asks nothing for that. He doesn't call any attention to it as a burden he bears himself. And so he's my favourite character in the book. book is sentence by sentence. It's extraordinarily careful. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of it, but it's, it's very attentive to its effects. And I mean, did you, are you one of those people who goes back and rewrites and rewrites and rewrites? Yes, absolutely. I mean, even though the arc of the story didn't change, I changed as a man. And so my understanding of the world, I started at 32, I finished at 42. My sort of understanding, my own hopes and dreams and how I felt about life changed enormously. And so I also had so much more empathy for the character of Agnes. And then separately, I understood my own mother's uh, struggle and her addiction. And so I went back and I changed every sentence a hundred times until it felt right to me, until it felt like it had enough empathy and enough compassion, I think, throughout the book. But I also wrote the book only for the characters that were in it. I never knew that I would ever send the book out for submission. I never knew it would be published. And certainly there was a, a point where it might not be published. And so my entire motivation when I was writing it was to write it for the characters or for people like the characters, never imagining I would be sitting here uh, talking to you, Sam, or the spectator, um, or that it would be viewed through that lens, because that was just not something I was aware of. And so it was about really just refining the whole thing and telling the truth with as much honesty, clear-eyedness as I could, which isn't a word, uh, which hopefully gives dignity to the characters. You say that in the process of writing the book, your empathy towards Agnes, you know, who in some ways is a proxy for your own mother, kind of grew. And the acknowledgement at the end, which is very piercing, you say, you know, I owe my mother everything. A lot of the children of addicts are very angry. Did you kind of work through that by writing this? I don't think I've ever been angry, so I don't think I had to work through that. I've always just been a little bit crushed by the loss of it. Um, my mother's been dead for almost 30 years now, and I still miss her as much as I did when I was 16, and would have loved for her not to have sort of fallen to her addiction. But one thing I've managed to come to terms with a little bit more as I get older is 
how bloody hard it was for working class women at that time. And I think as a man, I have a responsibility to sort of trying to empathize with that and understand that. You know, my mother was a bright, talented, giving, kind, generous woman. And the world had no place for her ambition to go or for her hopes to go. She was almost worthless if she didn't have a man. She was almost shunned by society if she wasn't sort of building this perfect family. Nobody knew quite what to do with women like that. Um, And that's really hard. And so part of writing the book and putting Agnes on the page was me just acknowledging I see this and I can understand this now as a man because... As a kid, you're just dealing with grief and you're, you, you want someone to sort of get better and please get better. But then as a writer and as a man, you can say, I can understand why, you, why, why you're frustrated by this and why you turn into drink. And I think something that no one ever asked me is if I was a man and I went through what Agnes went through, the character Agnes went through, if I was bound by society's narrow limitations on me in that way, would I drink? And the answer is, is yes, I would absolutely drink. There's a line in the book that's very piercing, but it's given to another alcoholic, which is, she says, the more you love someone, the more they take the piss out of that. They'll do less and less of what you want and more and more of whatever they fucking please. Mm -hmm. Do you put that, I mean, is it important that that line is ironised by having the speaker it has? Because it's quite a dark, you know, take on the experience of the world yeah I think sometimes when you're living in poverty all you have is your physical self and also your love and your relationships and so I think those are always up for bartering and for negotiation and so that comment is a little bit also saying in the marketplace of when you bring all of yourself and you trust your love for someone that that person will take advantage of that and you know, might not be able to return that to you. So perhaps it's less ironic than I felt it was just very truthful. Douglas Stewart, thank you very much indeed for your time. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.